Arthur, good to see you. Good to see you, Rabbi. You got the sicha? Uh, yes, yes, I did. I did indeed. Very special. Uh, you see how special it is? Very profound. Very interesting. Very interesting. Very nicely put. Uh, got a, a moment to ask you a question? Sure. First of all, uh, there was a wonderful program dealing with the uh, a Cantus tale. Hey, Are you familiar with that? No. Tell me. It's the story of uh, a man, Jackie Mendelssohn, who basically is trying to elevate Hasidus, the, the cantorial way of expressing deep emotion uh, of Judaism. Uh, and, and he spends an entire hour illustrating it and teaching it. it it's really quite wonderful. I was wondering if if you have, uh, if this is a part of the, the Hasidic uh, way of uh, singing and a way of relating, Hasidut, it's called. So singing Nigun is a big part of Hasidus. Uh -huh. Nigun. The previous Rebbe said, if you don't appreciate music, you can't appreciate Hasidus. Uh-huh. Okay. Very good. Music, appreciate, can't, appreciate, can't, appreciate, can't appreciate Judaism. Yeah, well, that's the same thing. What does Hasidus mean? Appreciation of Judaism, spirituality. Yeah. yeah. I used it in uh, Harry Schiff's granddaughter's about mitzvah, I think, because she's musical. She's artistic. Much of when I use it. That uh, I said the two sides of it. Why? Why can't you appreciate spirituality and Judaism if you don't appreciate music? Music is transcendent. It's art. It's the finer things. On the other hand, music is exacting. You got to do the right notes. Judaism has those both two extremes. It's art, it's soul, it's connection. On the other hand, it has a system, rules and regulations. The mitzvah has to be exact. And the two don't go in conflict because in real art, any real artist embodies both of those extremes. Except, except I, I see the music, the, the, the music... Um portion, not even portion, because it, it, um, it's not an accompaniment, it, it is part of, 
you know, prayer, at least to me it is. The, the choreography is part of it. The music is part of it. The, the, the words are part of it. Um, it, it. It doesn't always, though, at least I've always seen it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be perfect. Um, I've been at, at, you know, lots of services where the, where the Chiliac Seymour doesn't particularly have a great voice or musical sense, but yet, but yet, you know, they're leading that service with, you know, with, with, you know, Ruach and, and okay. So it doesn't really maybe sound so perfect, Amazing. but it does at the moment. It, it kind of sounds perfect at the moment. So, yeah, you know, for sure. Listen, words from the heart enter the heart. Yeah. Somebody can pray beautifully and it's not from the heart. It won't touch anybody and vice versa. I'm just saying in the analogy, the previous Rebbe's yeah, yeah, analogy, sure. right. not speaking about the cantor, he's speaking about the concept of music. Why is he using the analogy of music? This is the previous Rebbe. He's a, he's a high level uh, authority. Yeah. He makes such a statement. Why does he use music as the key to spirituality? Because it has the two extremes. It is transcendent. It's freeing. It's music. It's art. On the other hand, any musician knows but to create good music, it's got to be precise. And that's Judaism. People have a big problem with the precision of Judaism, with the rules and regs. If this is supposed to be spirituality and transcendent, we should be able to decide what to do. We should light candles on Wednesday if we decide if we feel like it. How does that fit with transcendence? And the answer is if you want to produce real music, you got to do it exact. And that's not in conflict with transcendence. It actually opens up our transcendence. It's counterintuitive. But that is uh, part of the message. Hi, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Mark, I listened to the game last night. Jake sounded great. Oh, my yeah. God. Was it his really? first game? <laughs> his first game was Friday night. His oh major, God. his MLB debut was Friday night. He's He's got a series this weekend and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in St. Louis. And then he goes back to Omaha and he's in Colorado. I mean, it's going to be all season, but. His uh, his MLB debut was Friday night. Was, well, yeah, Friday night, and then he and he, he they're in a series in uh, Arizona. They're playing this Arizona. All MLB, it's all MLB, no? This is the Mets. Yeah, no, this is for the Mets. Yeah, Keep this is for the Mets. This is his major. This was his major league. Uh, sounds opening yeah. night. Yeah, he was. Uh, he just was, sounds he so was, natural. Thanks. Thanks. He was you either got amazing. it or you don't. You either got it or you don't. He was pretty this, amazing. This he, is opening he got day to call. of the season? This is opening What's day that? of the season? That what? Friday was opening day for Mets? No, 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 no. No, Mets opening day was a couple weeks ago. They So what he's doing is he's doing Howie Rose, who, you know, is, is the radio voice of the Mets. It's Howie Rose and Wayne Randazzo. Howie is not doing a lot of the uh, West Coast away games. He's pulling back. He's 68. He had a health scare last year. So he's pulling back a little bit. So they, you know, went looking for, you know, kind of somebody to, to be doing those games. And my son wound up, you know, he, he sent his stuff in and, you know, he's been in the minor leagues anyway. So he got the job. And so the first away series this season in the West coast is this series now in Arizona. So they're in Arizona and they go to St. Louis. So, you know, he travels with the team and, you know, I mean, he's, he's in the major leagues. And so he's going to be doing the, the most of the West Coast um, Mets radio, away games radio with Wayne Randazzo. So he'll do innings three, four, and seven. And then 
any even numbered uh, extra innings. So Friday night happened to have gone to extras. So not only did he get to call his first major league home run in the seventh inning, but he actually for his first major league game got to call the game, you know, the, the final out and which is like, you know, like never happens for a guy that, you know, is in the number two chair because the, the number one chair is always, you know, the ninth inning and the, end of the game and the beginning. anyway. So it was great. It was just, so you're gonna post. Really cool. uh, you're gonna post some clips on the on the Lakota Sichel's chat. Sure. I, yeah. 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 I don't know. It'll be able to listen to all nine innings, but I'd love to hear. No, the no, no. There's, there's the some winning. clips of his of his. Uh, did they win of, or no? Uh, win. His first inning of his first inning in the home run. I'll put him up. I'll put him up. Did they, did they win? Yeah, they won Friday night. It was oh, a great win. Friday. They lost the last night. Story. They <laughs> lost last night. Rabbi, but, can I just? And then today at four o'clock. Today four o'clock. On CBS 880, if you want to listen to if you want to listen to the game, it's a great download game. It's CBS 880. Just download the app on your phone. So yeah, you it's just anyway. CBS 880. It's the radio station. I, 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 whatever. If you have, if he sends around little clips, I'd love to. I'm not yeah, listen yeah, I will. I will. I will. You know, oh, quickly, thanks. Miss a game. Trust me. You know, he was on television. Uh, my, Hi, brother, Gary. my brother, the great scholar, and I had a little radio between our beds in the room. We were Yankees people. Yep. And we didn't miss a game. Yep. Trust me. And when the Yankees were playing, we had the cards laid out at the infield and the catcher, Thurman Munson, Oliver Shalom. Yep. We had the whole outfield. We had Jackson. and We had the whole thing. And whoever was on the on-deck circle, we had his card. We had all <laughs> 660 cards back in that day. Today is probably 1,000. Mark, quickly, do you know your son was on television last night? Yeah, yeah we do. <laughs> Daddy, you know yeah. that his son, you, you understand what he's talking about? His son is becoming yeah. like a major league. I know my son is. No, 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 Garrett. So what happened last night is, <laughs> so last night he's on radio, but the SNY broadcast, which was actually Pix Eleven last night, but the TV broadcast with Gary Cohen and and Ron Darling last night, they started talking about my son Jacob. Right. His name is Jake. He goes by Jake, Jake Eisenberg. So they were talking about him, and he, in the tenth inning, it's a long story. He had to like run back up from down the field because he was down on the field waiting to do the interviews for the end of the game, but it went to extra innings. So he was like making his way up. So they were telling that story, and while they were telling that story, the camera, the TV camera, was on the radio booth. I saw. So you know, while they were talking about it, you know, there was all of a sudden because I was watching the game on TV with the radio in the background, you know, listening to the radio. And yeah, so our, our phones kind of exploded. That's crazy. Gary, what were you saying about your son? My son is big into sports too, and he's got a career in sports. He works for the PGA, and uh, he does their websites and uh, social media and that kind of stuff. Right. So he's so That's it. what happens when you start learning sequels. <laughs> <laughs> if you learn sequels for long enough, this is great. It's fun. I like it. Yeah, so... Uh... It's been it's been a crazy uh, few weeks for us. Let's study a little bit. Yep. Richie today, David. What's the Richie? I make you officially in charge of Richie. <laughs> Blessing on Torah study. Baruch Okay. Very special day in my life today. I had my first cup of coffee in nine days. I feel like a human being again, so thank you. Baruch Atah, 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 Baruch Atah,
So this is a beautiful sikha. I hope you, uh, let's get into it. So the conversation is that there is a book of the Mishnah referred to as Perkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. Most of us are familiar with it, right? And it's, it's unique. Whereas all the other books of the Mishnah, I'm going to throw it out, there's about 63 of them, are laws. This is the only one that is ethics. The only one. It's totally different, but it's part of the Mishnah. And, be, and, it's, and it's singled out for specialness. And the custom is that the six chapters of Perkei Avot and the six weeks between Passover and Shavuos, and we read one chapter or read or study one chapter a week on Shabbos afternoon after Mincha. Then there are those customs, which is also the Chabad custom, that we don't stop after the six weeks, but we continue the whole summer until Rosh Hashanah. It's like half the year from Passover to Rosh Hashanah. Every Shabbos we're studying, reading, a chapter of ethics of our fathers. We go through it a few times. And um, there is an opening and closing verse to Perkei Abos. Before you start each chapter, there is a little section that's read, which is the theme of the Sikha, which is actually a quote from a tractate, a, Mish- a Mishnah, a tractate Sanhedrin, a different tractate. Hey, Al, welcome. Which says, all of Israel have a share in the world to come. And it gives proof from verses. Every Jew has a share in the world to come. This is a statement in the Talmud and the Mishnah of Sanhedrin. However, for whatever reason, the sages decided to put it as an intro to each chapter of Ethics of Our Fathers before it is read or studied. There's also a PS, a postscript, after every chapter is read and studied, which I believe we did this together a few weeks ago, which is another Mishnah, which comes from a different place in the town. Some of you might remember, Rabbi Hananya taught that God wanted to give us merit, and definitely gave us a lot of mitzvahs. It's very strange. You don't find this uh, in any other area of Talmud, where we have a, an opening and a closing. It's like a pregame and a postgame to every chapter. Uh, hey, Howie, nice to see your name. Uh, we, don't, we don't have that anywhere else in the Talmud. There's no such thing that before you study, you have to study something else. And when you finish studying, you got to study something else, only by ethics of our fathers, for whatever reason. And the discussion is, why is this thing chosen? Just so we see it with our own eyes. Uh, let me show it to you on the screen. This is uh, this is what it looks like. Many of you are probably very familiar with it. Some of you not. So let me just, for one second. Here's Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. Pirkei Avot. Let's take chapter one. Chapter one starts with number one, but it has the introduction. Notice that they put the introduction in a lighter font because it's not part of the chapter. In fact, it tells you that it's from the tractate Sanhedrin, which is a different tractate, not Ethics of Our Fathers, but it's in there. Then you have the actual tractate, which starts with number one and goes all the way to number 18, and then it has the closing one, which is also placed here in unbold. And it also comes from a different tractate, the tractate of Makot. So this we're not discussing today, but I'm just putting it up there for interest that there is a beginning and an end. And the Rebbe in another sikha, which we covered together a few weeks ago, explains why this is the end. 
But today we're discussing why that is the beginning. It's almost like there's a sandwich. Again, it's interesting because it's unique in any area of Torah study. I don't know any area of Torah study where we do this. There's a concept of making a blessing before you study Torah. But to study something else before you study this, you know, it's like a speaker will get up, usually not a good speaker, will get up and say, before I begin, I have something to tell you. You know what I mean? Stop. Start. Here we have this introduction. And why this introduction? So let's read it. All Israel, which means all the Jewish people, have a share in the world to come. And as it is stated, your people are all righteous. They will inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hand, in which I take pride. Okay. So the question is, why is this the introduction? What's special about this verse? It's a beautiful verse. It says that every Jew has a share in the world to come. Every Jew, no matter what, from the most pious, the most religious, the least, Nice to know, but that is not specific for ethics of our father. It's all of Judaism. Why is it the introduction specifically to this book, which is not all of Judaism, it's just the ethics of Judaism. So that's sort of the question of the Sikha. What the Rebbe does in the Sikha, what the Rebbe does in the Sikha is that he and I put it up on a spreadsheet, which I'm going to show you in a second. The Rebbe sets up two sides of the coin, showing us that both ethics of our fathers and this concept that every Jew has a share in the world to come have a yin and a yang. Uh, all of the topics that we're discussing, ethics of our fathers and what it does for us and the concept of the world to come, they have something very simple and basic. And then to the other side, they have something very extraordinary and profound. You know, most things in life, most things in Judaism, they're either simple or they're profound. You go to first grade, you're learning simple things. You go to graduate school, you learn profound things. Um, and that's true in Judaism too. That's generally, you know, are you learning Rashi? You're learning more simple or you're learning something very complex in the Talmud. But the Rebbe argues in this Sikha, that when it comes to this theme, the theme of this sicha, how it, nice to see a face. The theme of this sicha is that we're discussing something that is so basic and yet is so profound. If you read the sicha, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm putting it out there because this is the, <clears throat> the body of the entire sicha. Hopefully we'll succeed in infusing a soul into the body because it's it's misleadingly simple. It's not simple at all. It's a very profound sikha. Hopefully we'll be able to get to it, do it. So let's put up the spreadsheet and get into that, to that tzugazunt, into that mode of thinking. Let me just make sure I can see everybody's faces. Ryan, one day I'm going to get another screen and I'll be able to be like a human being. Okay. I got Levy home, so all my computer gadgets are taking a step up. But that's not going to last. Okay, so this is this is my entire spreadsheet for today. Could, could um, you just make that a touch, loud, a touch bigger? A touch bigger? Yeah. No, yeah. Is that good? That's perfect. Better. Yes, thank you. Okay, so let's first focus, before we get to the yin and the yang, let's first translate the words, the world to come. You know, we're all familiar with the term Ganeda, which means paradise, Garden of Eden. But here the Talmud uses the word world to come. It's different. So it's explained many places, Nachmanides, many sources, the Zohar itself. 
but they're not the same. There's a spiritual reward that the person gets after they die. And that is for the soul. It's in heaven. Soul experiences tremendous pleasure in the closeness of God. However, that is wonderful, but that's not the final destination for a Jew. The final destination is when all of history is accomplished and after Mashiach, either immediately after or 40 years after, depending on the way things play out, there's going to be resurrection of the dead, which is one of the 13 principles of faith in Judaism. It's fundamental, as difficult as it is to fathom, even though it's a little easier now with the advent of DNA and etc. In Talmud, they didn't talk about DNA. They didn't know about it yet. But they talked about the loose bone, which is an indication that it will always be here. And this is the final reward. This is the world to come. Aha! It's greater than Gan Eden. Gan Eden is wonderful. Paradise. But it's not quite as great as the world to come. Which the world to come is different and distinct from Gan Eden. In that it is bodies resurrecting. Every Jew that ever lived, with almost zero exception, if you read the footnotes, there's a couple of exceptions. It's very hard to get into that camp will be resurrected and come back and, re and live in this world in their body. There's a whole discussion in the Talmud, how old well they're going to be when they come back and all that good stuff. And what if you got married a few times? Who are you going to be married to? Forget about it. But the bottom line is this is fundamental Jewish faith and this is the ultimate destination. Not Gan Eden. Gan Eden is for us. It's nice, but it's a, it's, it's a temporary entertainment station until the project of creation is fulfilled and we have what's called the home for God in this world and we all come back to that home and live with God happily ever after. There's no death anymore after Ghanedin. After the world to come. And the reward for the two is said to be Ghanedin is more reward for Torah study. And Olam Abba, the world to come, the world of, of resurrection, is a reward for practical observance of mitzvahs. And that's why in Gan Eden, paradise, not everyone gets to be in Gan Eden, and not everyone gets the same Gan Eden, because Gan Eden means spiritual. Spiritual means how much Torah do you study? How much do you understand? How much Gan Eden is a spiritual pleasure of appreciation of God's presence, and how much you understood in your lifetime here that you're able to have access there. It's almost not a reward. It's even more of a consequence. It's not equal pasqual. I'm starting to quote. Josh Gordon, for those who listen to it. It's not equal pasqual for every Jew. Just because I'm a Jew and I did a mitzvah, I get Gan Eden? No. Maybe some Jews don't get Gan Eden. Maybe they get very little Gan Eden. There's a billion levels in Gan Eden. So Gan Eden is very different from one to another. And it's based on Torah scholarship, which is different from one to another. What level did you achieve? When it comes, however, to the world to come, the world of resurrection, it's for every Jew and basically equally. And part of the reason is because it's the reward for mitzvah observance. And every Jew could do a mitzvah. Not every Jew could learn Torah. Not every Jew could learn Torah on the same level. There are myriads of level of intelligence and understanding. But the mitzvah is a mitzvah. It's practical. Every Jew did a mitzvah. Some did more, some did less. But everybody can do a mitzvah. And every Jew does mitzvahs. The Talmud says that even the simplest Jew, even the sinners amongst you are filled with mitzvahs like pomegranates have, have seeds. Every time we turn around, we're doing mitzvahs, we're helping people, we're doing good things. Mitzvahs is something that is an equalizer. Everybody can do it. You don't have to be really smart or even focused or inspired. Just do it. And therefore, it's going to be for every Jew and pretty much equally, even in the footnotes, the rabbi brings different sources. that Some will experience it maybe differently than others, but generally speaking, it's equal. So this is the introduction to the conversation. So all Israel have a share in the world to come. To translate what it means, it's the world of resurrection. 
and it's in bodies, as by contrast to Ganeidim, which is in souls. And the background to it is because Ganeidim is a reward for study of Torah, which is a soul thing. Whereas the world to come is a reward for action, which is a body thing. And the consequence to that is that Ganeidim has different levels. Everyone has a different level based on how much they appreciated and understood Torah in their lifetime. Whereas in the world to come, everybody's equal because everybody has a body. Everybody can do an action. An action that Moses putting on the fill and then me and you putting on the fill. It's the same action. So that is the illumination of the meaning of this statement. Every Jew has a share in the world to come. Okay. But then going back to the original opening question, why is this an introduction to ethics of our fathers? And specifically when we read it during the summer months. So here goes the yin and the yang that I was talking about. Uh, the Rebbe, I put it bold over here. We have two sides. Ethics of our fathers has two sides of the coin. And this whole discussion, this whole sikha, should I, let me take, let me, let me, let me, I see hands are raised. So let me uh, pause for that because we're sort of going into the body of the sikha. Go ahead. Okay, so before you went on uh, to the next step, I just wanted to make sure I understood. Uh, every Jew is uh, headed to the world to, be, to come because every Jew has the ability to perform mitzvot or every Jew is occupied with the performance and does mitzvot and therefore has a place in the world to come. In other words, do you, is it just because we Jews have the ability to do mitzvot that they have a place in the world to come or because Jews do mitzvot? Because, so what if a Jewish person said, you know what? Why should I do a mitzvah? Now I don't, I don't have to. I'm already going there. What's it's the, the latter? It's the latter. You said it very well. It's because every Jew does mitzvah. It's a very bold statement that a Talmud. Every Jew does mitzvah. And we probably all know some very bad Jews. But the Talmud makes an unequivocal statement. Every Jew does mitzvah. Period. Well, for example, it, it, when the Jews left Egypt, there were Jews who said, no, we are going the wrong direction, Datan, right? Uh, mm -hmm. let's, we should be going the other way, join me. But he also has a, a share of the world to come. And, and is it an equal share? He's got the same share as Moses? Basically. Because he had the ability to do mitzvot? No, 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 no. I, I, again, there are... Not the ability. Datan did mitzvahs too. That's a Talmudic statement. If you read the footnotes, you'll find it that says in the Talmud certain places that certain people don't have a share in the world to come. It's like maybe a handful. I'm going to put it out that one of them is Jesus, Nazareth. Because he became an idol. But even he, the Rebbe, struggles to say it's impossible because, as we're going to learn today, the world to come is an essential bond with God. A child never divorces his parent. He's never not the parent. He is the, a yid is a yid. He's part of a shem. So even that is, but that's so few and far between. You have to convince me that there's bad Jews. I don't need to go back to Dathan. We had the guy named uh, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> you know, we don't have to go back so far. But the Talmud makes a statement. 
that every Jew has a share in the world to come, generally equally. I should put it in quotations, because again, if you read the footnotes, but generally, yeah, it's equal. It's because action is equal. It's a great equalizer. There has, you know, yeah. listen, it's, um, you want to say it's not fair? Maybe the answer to that question is that in Gan Eden, Gan Eden is pretty nice, by the way, but it's only a resort vacation until we come to the final destination, we come to our home. It's like my home is under construction. So they put me up in a hotel. That's what this is like. We all live a very short time because we're part of a chain of history, starting from Abraham and Sarah all the way to Mashiach. And we're building a home. This home is under construction for who? For daddy. Or the more term would be our husband. Hashem is our beloved. And he wants to move in with us forever and ever. So it's under construction. So what happens, we all do some construction and then we go to the, we're too old to work. So they put us up on a resort and we stay there and we have a great time, the best entertainment, the best everything based on how we produce in the project until the home is ready. When the home is ready, everybody moves in. So yeah, the home is ready, everyone moves in and it's equal, it's equal. The reward in the meantime, this guy's staying in a five-star, six, seven-star hotel and this guy's staying in a Motel 6. So I guess that's when they sort of have to catch up and they get cleansed and you know, some of those Motel 6 have roaches. Maybe wild beasts, I don't know. And the heat is put up very high. It's all kind of, Gan Eden is a system that's uh, it's more fair, more personal. But Olam Abba is everybody. But not because they could do mitzvahs, but because they do mitzvahs. Yeah. Right. So you said something about resurrection after 40 years. Can you clarify that? So the rule is, Maimonides says, now, whenever you talk about what's going to be at the end, it was revealed, but in hints. Nobody knows. If somebody comes and tells you, I know Mashiach is coming on this and this day, you know he's whacked. Or he's a liar. Even Jacob wanted to reveal it, and it was hidden from him. For various reasons, Hashem hid it. And, and the system, and Maimonides says, clearly, it's a mitzvah to believe in Mashiach and to pray for it and to work for it. That's the goal. The goal is to come back into that home with Hashem. However, the details we will not know till it happens. And therefore, there are many different scenarios expressed in the Zohar and Maimonides and other sources and Nachmanides. And one of them is that Mashiach has to come first and bring the whole world to peace and everything. And then 40 years later, at a maximum, will be resurrection. That is the, I guess, the most basic halachic, if you will, uh, technical approach to what will happen as Maimonides plays it out in his Guide to the Perplexed. And even in the book of Mishnah Torah, in the last chapters, he mentions it in passing. Um, and uh, however, the reason why I said it, I didn't say it definitively, that's officially the, the schedule. I didn't say it definitively because there are many other sources that say that they may happen simultaneously, depending on the birth pangs of Mashiach. You know, the Holocaust, pretty bad birth pangs. We probably overcompensated that we may not need the 40 years. And some say that uh, uh, the Mashiach comes resurrection will start immediately by righteous people. And guess what? We just learned in this Mishnah that every your people are all righteous. So it becomes a whole discussion. 40 years is the max, but it could be moved up. Look, Hashem is flexible. We're supposed to have 400 years in Egypt. And he figured out the math for 210. He was the first Jewish accountant. <laughs> so, okay, so, so when we move on from this life, we wind up in Gan Eden 
until the resurrection? Yeah. Okay, I got that. <laughs> All right. Now, we hope Mashiach is coming very soon. You know, if you're a Chabadnik, the Rebbe said that he feels that this is the last generation of the exile because we're getting there. We're ready for it. So we may not get to see Gan Eden, but you know what? I'll accept it. David. Are there any mitzvot we do just by living? Yeah, every time you thank God for your breath, even if you thank God uh, subconsciously, you're trying to figure out how every Jew has mitzvahs. Yes. You find me one that doesn't. I'd rather not. It's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard. But there's nothing that's automatic. I guess not. Then it wouldn't okay. count. But it's an action. Okay. Thank there's you. So much opportunity for mitzvahs. You know, I see people are struggling with this. I want to just tell you the story. I didn't want to do it because it takes two minutes. And there's a lot more to come in the sikha. But I'm just going to put it out there. I told you, the Talmud says why the Jewish people compare to a pomegranate, which is why we eat pomegranates on Rosh Hashanah, our most important day, if you will, because even the languages, this is based on a biblical verse, by the way, that even your most empty Jews, if you, the languages, are filled with mitzvahs like pomegranates. So they talk about the Rebbe having a meeting with the Satma Rebbe. And if you know about them, they had opposing views on how to look at Jews that are secular. And they had a very strong relationship for many, many years. It fell apart later when the mitzvah tanks and the, he didn't like the Rebbe's embracing of Israel and things like that. But in essence, he, he, he was a, a high level guy. He may have been wrong or whatever about certain things, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't just a, a radical. He was a high level Torah scholar and, and the Rebbe considered him. But the approaches were very different. So the Rebbe met with him. He came to the Rebbe for his shiva when the Rebbe lost his mother in 1965. And the Rebbe went to him once so these conversations are recorded for posterity. And the conversation was to show the Rebbe's approach, which you see, it's like Shammai and Hillel, let's call it. And how Hillel's view, the Rebbe's view is working. So many Jews are embracing Yiddishkeit and coming closer uh, in direct or indirect connection to the Rebbe Shluchim, whereas Satmar is, you know, starting to put the tail between their legs and supporting the local Chabad guy. <laughs> this work of being exclusive and saying Judaism is only for the 4% of the absolute orthodox uh, is, is, not, is not a winning formula. But at the time, this was a discussion. He was afraid of the Rebbe's approach. So the discussion was, he said to the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, I have a question. How could the Talmud say that even the sinners of Israel, it's a direct quote, are filled with mitzvahs like pomegranate seeds, if they're filled with mitzvahs, if they're sinners of Israel, how could they be filled with mitzvahs? They're sinners. And the Rebbe said, I also have a question on that Talmud, but I have the opposite question. If they're filled with mitzvahs, how could we call them sinners? You see the difference? He, the Satma Rebbe said, how could we say they're filled with mitzvahs? They're sinners. And the Rebbe said, how can we even call them sinners? They're filled with mitzvahs. It's a difference between how you look at the person. If you see a person, let's say they're a sinner. But they also have good qualities. Everybody does. You have a choice to see what they don't have, or you have a choice to see what they do have. Zoe, cut it out. Yeah, Zoe, come on. How are you going to decide which angle to go to see what they have or what they don't have? Depends. If it's your child, you're going to notice what they do have because you care about them. 
And you'll try to build on it. If it's not your child, if it's just an employee who's, who's, who's here today, gone tomorrow, you'll see the weakness and that will be your focus. To the Rebbe, every Jew is Hashem's child. And therefore he said, how could you even call him a sinner? He's a sinner. He's filled with mitzvahs. I, I don't know if that was understood, but this is a very striking difference. Michael, you had a comment? No, Zoe took you away. Michael, you want to say something? Wait, I'm muted. Hot. Yes, I want to say something. When Mashiach comes, everybody will know God. That's what it says, right? No. Everybody. It doesn't mean just the Jews. It means the whole world. So if the whole world knows God, how come only the Jews will be resurrected? Knowing of God by the whole world is a symptom of the time of Mashiach. You don't have to wait to the era of resurrection for that. Okay. The time of Mashiach is very much like now. It's just a world without service. It's exactly like now. Mashiach could come today. Hopefully it will. Nothing's going to change. We're all going to have our jobs. The doctors will probably be busy with preventative medicine because there won't be illness. But we're going to have, the lawyers will probably be busy with, uh, I don't know, deeper discussion of law, how to make the world better because there won't be discord and, and dishonesty. But exactly as now, without the negative, because the knowledge of God will be felt by everybody. By who? By all people. Resurrection is a different phase. It's not necessarily at the same time. And it's a different concept. Not to say that non-Jews don't have it. They're, when Ramanides clearly states, a non-Jew who does the seven mitzvahs has a share in the world to come. Arguably, this is the resurrection. But it's not a statement that everybody has. That's a Jewish thing. Should we move on? Uh, just to, if you don't mind clarifying what... Um... Uh, we just discussed about Gan Eden being a way station for the world to come. That's not what it says in the Sikha, if I read this properly. The Sikha said that Gan Eden is not accessible to every Jew, but only uh, Jews who understand Torah. So there is, there is a different class of Jew who goes to Gan Eden before the final uh, resurrection. And I'm not, uh, I'd sort of like to know, so what happens to the rest of us? <laughs> well, you're not part of that class. By the way, I, I, I wrote that on my spreadsheet, did I not? I wrote that, I just highlighted it. So you're right. But the class is very broad. And the arguments can be that anyone that studied, remember, Ghanaian is the reward for Torah study. Because Ghanaian, like Torah study, Torah study is a general term for appreciation, prayer, mitzvahs that we do with mind and heart, not action. Uh, that is very uh, individualized. Everyone has their level of appreciation. When we die, the angel says, how much did they do? Everybody gets a check. Everybody did. Everybody did a lot of mitzvahs, even if we think we didn't. Everybody did mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Every second, because we're just good people. You see somebody, you give them a smile, you did a mitzvah. If you lifted up his spirits when he needed it. I mean, mitzvahs are flying left, right, and center. But then they'll say, did you appreciate God? Did you study Torah? I don't know. I would recommend that very few people are going to get a zero. Everybody studies some Torah over a lifetime. They sat through a Yom Kippur sermon. They heard some Torah. And then there's degrees. And there, there's very, very big degrees. 
because it's about appreciation. It's the soul reward. It's not the body reward, like in the world to come where the body and soul come together. And the body is equalized. We're all the same. Now, what happens in the meantime with those? He finds them a place. There's a lot of discussion about this. This is uh, much broader than this. There's a lot of discussion. Kabbalah, and even in the Talmud, and Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, all the different things that take place. Um, you know, the soul, every soul needs some cleansing, unless it's very, very perfect, which is almost impossible. The cleansing is usually not more than 11 months, sometimes much, much, much less. That's why there's Kaddish and all that, right? We call it hell, but it's only a purgatory. It's only a cleansing. It's like a car wash. And then uh, if you're worthy of Gan Eden, and there's, there's lower Gan Eden, there's higher Gan Eden, uh, and this relates to some of the worlds that we've talked about in some of our classes, Atzilos, Berea, Yitzira, Asiya. There's three Gan Edens, Yitzira, Berea, Asiya. Um, and otherwise, I guess they could be in a way station where there's no pain, but you're just hanging out. You exist in a comfortable way. Let me just see why they're bothering me because they know I'm in a class. I'm in a class. You need me now? For what? And a lot of stuff is in my car. My keys on my desk, if someone wants to stop by. What? No, but there's keys on my desk, and I'm in the middle of teaching a bunch of wonderful people. Okay. There's only one person I take calls from in the middle of class. That's not true. I guess I would take from my kids too. Okay. Um, okay, let's let's try to do a little more. I mean, this itself is an interesting discussion. Part of me is uh, thinking about making this a two-week thing because it's very rich, but I'm not going to indulge. Okay, so. Let's see what happens. We only have 20 minutes. I don't know if we can do justice, but let's give it a shot. So the Rebbe now introduces, remember that this we just learned now is just the introduction to the ethic of our fathers, and the question is why. So we say, if you take a look at the ethics of our fathers, you find these two sides. On the one hand, it seems quite basic. On the other hand, it contains profound depth. How do we see this in ethics of our fathers? So the Rebbe gives two examples. The content of ethics of our fathers is basic morality and decency. The commentaries on ethics of our fathers describe it as such. Commentary, the most basic commentary of ethics of our fathers, which is known as the Bartanura. That's where the wine comes from. He's the equivalent of Rashi on the Mishnah. There isn't really Rashi on the Mishnah. There's Bartanura on the Mishnah. And he is the he's the basic interpretation. And he says, what's Perkayavot? It's basic more of that morality and decency. He says, even Gentiles have made books of morality. This is not so much Torah. It is, but it's it's, it's a parallel to other wisdoms. It's, it's basic. But then on other places, the Talmud refers to ethics of our fathers as beyond the letter of the law, the ways of a chassid. A chassid in Talmudic language means someone who goes beyond the letter of the, word, the law. We call a chassid somebody who is following the chassidic approach of, of Kabbalah and Jewish spirituality. But that's an invention post-Baal Shem Tov, that terminology it was given to us by the opposers of chassidus. But the Talmudic language, chassid, means one who goes beyond the letter of the law. What's the connection? Because chassid comes from the root of chassid, one who's doing kindness with his creator. He's not just doing what he needs to do as his obligation, but he's doing more. So we find these two sides in ethics of our fathers, these two descriptions, these two extreme descriptions. 
Furthermore, the, the fact that it's customary to study these chapters during the summer months also has two opposite descriptions. Sometimes it says because the summer months is a time when there's overindulgent tendencies, the weather's nice, etc. We're relaxing a little more, and uh, which is fine, but we could tend to become more overindulgent and become focused on, on over, overly in materialism. And therefore, we study these things to avoid us falling to the pitfall of materialism. So that's a very basic thing. You think that's something that's more for you know Jews who, who tend to fall into overindulgence. At the same time, even the greatest tzaddikim, most lofty people who are busy just with lofty spirituality and meditation, would spend a lot of time and focus on the ethics of our fathers. So we again find these two sides. And that becomes the introduction by introducing that ethics of our fathers has two extremes, so basic and so profound, it's gonna help us understand why the aforementioned uh, is the introduction to its reading. Because the aforementioned, namely all of Israel have a share in the world to come, also has its basic interpretation and it has its extremely profound interpretation. So the Rebbe does it and I laid it out to you pretty clearly. The world to come, the world to come, as we discussed it now in detail, on the one hand, it's a reward for simple, low-level work. Remember, it's a simple, it's a reward not for Torah study. It's the reward for the actual mitzvah, which is low-level work. Everybody can do it. Wrap the tefillin, give tzedakah, make a bracha, whatever it is. It's action. So it seems very basic. And yet, it's far and away the loftiest reward. It's far and away the loftiest reward. It's much more lofty than the world to come, than Gan Eden. How do we know? We haven't seen it yet. How do we know? Hopefully we haven't seen either one yet. And the answer is because it comes later. It must be greater. You say the best for last. We just finished talking about what's the greatest dream of a young MLB announcer. And he gets to announce the last pitch. Don't give me the seventh inning. Seventh inning is nice, but the ninth inning, aha, extra innings, aha, aha. If it came last, it's the greatest reward. And if you make the calculation, it's the greatest righteous people. Think of Abraham and Sarah, Moses and, and, and Miriam, the prophets and the prophetesses, Mordechai and Esther. And they went to the I don't want to use the word way station because it's a luxurious, uh, it's a luxurious paradise. And they're there for thousands of years. It's known that every thousand of years, by default, every thousand years, you go up to another world. There's the spiritual counterpart of our world, Asiya, the world of action. That's the lowest Ganadin. The spiritual counterpart of Yitzira, the world of formation. That's the next level Ganadin. And there's even a spiritual counterpart of Berea, of the world of Berea, the world of their lofty angels that get burnt up, which is the highest, highest Gan Eden. And after a thousand years in Gan Eden, almost by default, you graduate to the next world. Plus, you know, that's why we say Kaddish and we, we do a schnapps on the day of a Yertzai. We say the Neshama should have an Aliyah. Aliyah is like when you come up to the Torah, when you go, to, when you go up to Israel, Aliyah. Because the soul goes up each year, it graduates. Remember, we're talking about paradise. Paradise Gan Eden is Torah study. It's, it's intellectual. And in intellectual pursuit, you never stay static. You always grow, 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 grow. 
So 3,000 years, Mordechai and Esther, Avram and Sarah, are learning higher and higher levels of paradise. Wow, they're like, you know, at least in Berea. And they will be find it worthy to leave that state and come back down here into a physical body? What means it has to be much greater than that? So we see two real extremes in terms of what paradise, what the world to come is like. How can this be? Let's shed light on this two extremes. Why should there be two extremes? Either the world to come should be basic, a reward for basic service. You don't have to be a big smart guy. You didn't develop, you're not a scientist in the language of Torah. You're not a big Torah scholar. You didn't discover the cure for cancer. You didn't learn a lot of Talmud and Zohar. You just did the mitzvahs. You're basically, you're a, you're a mailman. You just did it. It makes sense. It's a basic reward for basic service. But on the other hand, it's the greatest reward that Abraham and Sarah will come back here for it. And they're going to say, forget that whole paradise, that resort close to Hashem, like an angel of seraphim they're going to be. They are. And they're experiencing that. And they're going to come back here to this place. Obviously, this place will be perfect and glorious. But why? How do you explain that? So the fundamental part of the sikh is this line. There's a principle we say in Lachadodi, Sof The last action came first in thought. If you make a project, the last action, the final result is first in thought. Let's say you decide you want to build a beautiful home. You decide it's time to build my dream home. There's a lot of actions in that. You put away money, you go to the bank, you get an architect, you have a designer, you have a decorator, you have engineers, you have all kinds of permits. There's a million steps. Let's say it takes four years to do it. There's a lot of details. And a lot of the details are take a lot of genius and talent and creativity within you and within your team, let alone within your wife, furniture. And then in the end, the thing is finished and you turn the key and you walk in. That's basic. It's not so complicated. There's not a lot of genius to live in a house. You just live. But we say that the last action, the final result is really what you had in mind. When you envision, you sat with your wife on the couch one day, you said, oh, let's do this. Let's make a beautiful home. It would be nice for our family, for the grandkids, whatever it is. That envisioning that you had at that moment, it was really the final product. You're envisioning sitting with your wife and the kids and the grandkids maybe on the couch, doing nothing, just being there, unsophisticated. Even though a lot of sophistication had to happen in the interim. Because the principle is, and you could translate this in any project, in your fields, in whatever field you're in, you have, a, you have a project. It has many levels. Usually these levels are very lofty as they go until it comes down to the result. But the result is really the goal. Someone who's not result-oriented, you have some people in business, they're very creative, but they can't get the job done. They're very good talkers, but they can't close a deal. They're very good creating, coming up with ideas, but they don't know how to patent it. They don't know how to make it happen. They don't know how to put it on a shelf. They're pretty much useless. They're living in a world of theory. I'm not knocking them. It's nice. They have a fun life, but they're not going to amount to anything in the real world. So, because as we say in on Friday night, the final result, that is the original deepest thought. Says the Kabbalah, that's what Hashem did. He built a home. 
The home has myriads of levels. If you study a little bit of Kabbalah, we just talked about the four worlds, Atzilus, Bria, Yitzir, Asiyah, and each one has 10 Sefirot, which really means 100 or 1,000 Sefirot. And above that is the Keter, and above that is the Tzimtzum, and the world of Tohu, and the world of Tikkun, and uh, etc. any number of levels, angels and souls, it's a whole business. If you think this universe is gigantic compared to the speck of dust we call Earth, the spiritual universe is gigantic compared to the speck of dust of this universe. All of that is for the final result, for this speck of dust we call Earth. The whole purpose of all of it is God wants a home in the lowest world. The lowest world, the final result of the whole chain reaction known to the Kabbalists in the Zoom as Hishtalshalut, or Seder Hishtalshalut, the order of the chain reaction of the worlds, of all of the above. And they're all wonderful levels, and we talk about them, the angels, the burning up, the coming down, the singing, the string. All of that is just to bring that this little speck of earth that you and I should stand down here and do a mitzvah and help somebody or make a bracha or make kiddush or, or help someone get a job or heal somebody. All of that is for this. This is a principle in Torah. And that's, in other words, as Torah says, the whole purpose of creation of all of it is Hashem wants a home. Where? In the lowest world. Why does He want a home in the lowest world? Because remember, the final result is the purpose. If you're following the analogy of the guy who built a home or the guy who created the product, the former levels of the development of the home or the project are much higher and much more interesting and much more complex. There's a lot more creativity and juices going and people need brilliance to make it happen. Here you're just sitting on the couch, living with your wife and your kids. However, it's not about sophistication. It's about bottom line. The bottom line, the final result is the goal. And that's Hashem's purpose. According to Judaism, Hashem's purpose is that he wants this physical place to be his home, to be where he's at home, to be where he goes when he has nothing else to do. So now that we've established that concept, we've talked about it in various sikhs in different ways. This lowest place is the highest goal. So we already understand we're creating some kind of uh, order to the madness, to this yin and yang, that something can be so basic and yet so lofty. Because the last action, the basic physical world that we live in, that is Hashem's deepest purpose. Everything else, if you study a little bit of Kabbalah or a little Hasidus, a little Torah, a little idea, or at least in your imagination of what goes on in Gan Eden and how lofty and how gorgeous. Think of the best sunshine and the best rainbow and, and the best symphony. All of them put together. The best anything. Orchard, the best palace, what, what have you. You know, multiply it by infinity. That's Ganeidim. Probably a low level Ganeidim. But all of that, Hashem wouldn't bother if not for the result. Like the guy who's creating this great product. And everyone says, what a brilliant guy, but he wants to see it on the shelf. He wants to have that home. He's brilliant. He invented the home and he came up how it's going to be. He wants to have a home and live there with his wife and his family. That's really what he wants. And if not for that, he wouldn't be bothered creating all these designs and these things, even though everyone's marveling. What a designer. Ah, what an engineer. What a heverman. Look at this. It's gorgeous. It's got wings. It's got home. It's got windows. It's got big windows. He says, yeah, that's all wonderful and beautiful, but that's not what I want. Hashem would give up all of the other worlds if they were not to bring to the final purpose.
So the final world is very simple, it's basic, and yet it's his essence. It's what he wants, his family. Jewish people are considered his family. He wants to move in with us. So based on this, let's continue. A mitzvah is accessible to all. We said that every Jew has mitzvahs, filled with mitzvahs, and that's why every Jew gets a share of the world to come. Why does everybody get to do mitzvahs? Why do we say that it's, you'll be hard-pressed to find a Jew who doesn't have mitzvahs, filled with mitzvahs? On the one hand, because mitzvahs are unsophisticated. You just do it. You can do them all the time, by, very quickly. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to be focused. You don't have to be inspired. You just do it. If Nike didn't steal that slogan, I would. For Chabad of PW. Just do it. That's the secret to Yiddishkeit. So it's simple. It's not profound. And yet, we say the mitzvah is accessible to every Jew. You know why? Because it expresses Hashem's essence and purpose. And every Jew is part of Hashem, and therefore every Jew has mitzvahs. These things are as far away as east and west. You're telling me that every Jew has mitzvahs because mitzvahs are nothing. You just do it. And the same token you're saying Every Jew has mitzvahs because how could he not? If he's a Jew, he's God's child. What is a child? He's the DNA. He's the essence of the father. And what is Hashem's essential desire? Mitzvahs. Physical. A home in this physical realm. So every Jew has to have mitzvahs. I want to give this an analogy to this. I want to give this an analogy to bring this to life. And it's an analogy from something that I witnessed myself. Recently, I, I, I whatever, it was, a, it was a funeral, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it could have been a wedding. It was an occasion where I was involved with the family that I only know uh, two out of the three branches of the family. There's three children, whatever, two girls and a boy, it doesn't matter. And, um, and I'm a little familiar with the relationship of the children to the father. Father's a very high level person, very smart and also very accomplished in the real world and very successful, very charitable. He'll help people privately, like a real person. He's also a brilliant person. He's filled with knowledge and he, nothing he doesn't know. And I had a little bit of an inkling. This is something I observed. I'm not sure if I'm absolutely true about that case, but it taught me something that helped me in understanding Hasidus and specifically this discussion. So I witnessed how they all came to the funeral. I spent a lot of time, you know, when you do a funeral, I spent time at the shiva. And one of the three children inherited the father's brilliance. One of the three children, this I knew before, inherited the father's kindness, not brilliance, simple person. But the kindness, the, the you know what I mean? The hearts. The third one, eh, just a person fine person, nothing special, nothing, doesn't excel in either one and doesn't, the first two have an extraordinary relationship with the father. How do I know? Because all the years, whenever I talk to them, they talk about the relationship. And the one who is brilliant, probably on par with the father or more, will always tell me, ah, my father just said something, this and that, it's so brilliant. That child appreciates the father's brilliance because that child is brilliant. The next child will always 
see the father in a way of the character. Because that child has character. We come to the funeral. We come to the funeral. It wasn't the, 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 the and they all come in. It's for their mother, so they obviously, and they all live in different places, what have you. And I watch how they greet the father. And I'm familiar with the relationships. I'm taking a rabbinic uh, license to, in, in, to, uh, in, to build on the story a little bit. And they meet each other. And I know the relationships are deep. One has a this relationship on a high level. One has a this relationship on a high level. One, eh. And they all came in and gave daddy a hug. The hug was exactly equal. There was absolutely no difference. Obviously, I'm not a reader of the minds, but I'm making the point. On the hug, on the hug, the father, the, the, the hug was there the same. What do you mean? How could you say it's the same? This one is so sophisticated intellectually. It has that relationship. This one is this. When it comes to the hug, they're all the same. Everybody can give the father a hug. And the answer is yes. Is that a plus or a minus? Is that because a hug is so great or because it's so simple? The answer is both. A hug is so simple. Everybody can give a hug. But Hasidus and Kabbalah says, what's the Kabbalah of the simplicity of a hug? Why is it so simple? Because it's beyond sophistication. Why do I love him? It's my dad. On the sophistication levels, why do I appreciate him? What do you mean he's so smart? Appreciate him, he's so wonderful, he's so character. You have explanations, but you can have appreciation of a person, not your father, versus this other person who lives across the world or lived a hundred years ago. And you can appreciate their wisdom and their character. These are all what Kabbalah talks about as giluyim which means not the essence of the person, things that the person gives off. It's not the essence. It's a very lofty conversation. But then it's a simple conversation. Give me three siblings. Give me 10. It doesn't make a difference. And they're all very different, from brilliant to simple to character to non-character. doesn't make all, everything in between. And they all come in and give daddy a hug. That's my dad. And that is very simple. And it's not so simple. It's, be, it's light years ahead of any other relationship. Because any other relationship is not essential. Any other relationship is not to dad, it's to dad's wisdom, to dad's character, his philanthropy, his kindness, his creativity. But dad, who's dad? That is the essence. And when a child hugs a father or a mother, that is a hug that's beyond any sophistication because it is in a different realm. I'm hugging you because you're my dad. There's no sophistication. I can't explain why I'm hugging you. I don't even want to explain it. Why am I hugging you? Are you stupid? You're my dad. And that is, I think, a good analogy for this entire sikha. I want to give credit to my son, Levi, who's home this Shabbos, and he's a brilliant student of Hasidus. Far more brilliant than his dad. And he helped me with this analogy. So the same thing is coming back now. That a mitzvah action is very simple. Anybody can do a mitzvah. Any yid, we're God's child. We can just wrap up the felon. 
we can light a Shabbos candle, we can make a bracha, we can make Kiddush, whatever it is, any mitzvah to help people, just do it. It's very basic. Nobody's excluded and nobody's different. Moses' tefillin are no different than your tefillin. That's a radical statement. Moses was almost an angel. Moses' tefillin is no different than your tefillin. How could that be? And the answer is, on the level of sophistication, Moses and me, and <laughs> but this is not sophistication. This is my dad. When I put film, I'm giving God a hug. It's physical. It is what it is. So simplicity, this is what the Rebbe is really teaching us in the Sikha. Find me the most simple, and I'll show you the most profound, because I'm bypassing all the levels of sophistication, and I'm touching the actual essence of the other person, of the other soul, of the purpose. And that is how the Rebbe then explains why the world to come is in a physical body. One is because it's a reward for physical action. It's a basic action, basic reward, physical. On the other hand, and people think of the body reward as more basic. It's not going to be as interesting as Gan Eden, which is spiritual. It's like symphonies. It's like rainbows, spiritual, brilliant. But you know what? We're going to touch God. It's not sophisticated. It's real. I'm not interested in sophisticated when my dad's in the room. Sometimes my dad wants to talk with me sophistication because that's his world. My dad happens to be a very brilliant man. When I go visit him, I just want to look at him. As long as I can, I want to just look at him, touch him. My dad's a brilliant guy and he wants to talk sophistication. Sometimes I'm in the mood. I'm not in the mood because I'm not so sophisticated. But I want to have a, a, a connection, so I'll talk to him about Torah. But the real connection? My dad, give him a hug. I can touch him. I can look at him. And that is what the world to come. It's in the physical body. It's not going to be lofty. It's going to be real. We're going to be with Hashem. Very simple. There's nothing better than that. So that's the Sicha. And that's what the Rebbe says here in the last four lines of our screen. Just to quickly recap. The world to come is for the lowest level work because it, but really the reward is infinitely loftier. What's greater, to hear a Torah class of Hashem's wisdom or to, or to have Hashem? <laughs> it's far and away greater, even though it's simple. Explained based on the principle that what the lowest world is the purpose. And therefore, every yid can do mitzvahs. And it's filled with mitzvahs. Yeah, because it's easy and basic. But really, not really. What's the Kabbalah of it? What's the rest of the story? Because every yid is one with Hashem, and he can't live a day without doing something for somebody. If he wasn't trained in religion, he's going to do a social mitzvah. He's going to help somebody. He can't just live life taking care of me. It's just not in his DNA. He's a yid. I'm not saying goyim don't do mitzvahs, a lot do. But by a yid, there's a principle that in our DNA, in our spiritual, in our neshama DNA, we have this concept that we have to do mitzvahs. We have to feel like we're making a difference. And why? For others, not for us, for Hashem, for the world. Depends on our education, how we word it. But the bottom line is the same. Why is that? Because we're one with Hashem. And that's why the, world, the reward will be in the world to come, in our bodies. 
on the one hand, a non, not so profound uh, reward. On the other hand, it's infinitely greater than any profundity that you have in Gan Eden. Because we're going to actually see God. We said it in the Haftorah yesterday of Isaiah. The revelation of God's glory will be revealed and all flesh shall see. You're going to see God with your flesh of your eyes. Not with your appreciation of your soul, your mind's eye. Whatever that means, we're going to, we're going to hug daddy. Which is worth for Adam and for Abraham and Sarah and Mordechai and Esther to come back down after 3,000 years of paradise to be right here. Because up there, they're hearing about daddy. They're learning about him. It's brilliant. It's musical. It's perfect. It's gorgeous. But where's daddy? Again, for the Kabbalists in the Zoom, and I want to bring us up slowly to more knowledge, that's called Giluyim, revelations of God. Things that God gives off, his wisdom, his information. But where's God? It's like going into your father's palace and you see all the guards and all the art and all the music and all the gold and all the chambers. But where's that? That? Who needs that? Look around. It's gorgeous. And then they're all going to come down here because dad's going to be here. That's where dad's purpose is. Dad's purpose is in a place which is very simple. He wants us to have him. He doesn't want us to have about him, which would be the word diluyim, the revelations, the expressions of Hashem, but he wants us to have him himself. The Alter Rebbe of Shneir Zalman is the founder of Chabad. We go into a trance at times of prayer. He's a brilliant man. He was a genius off the charts. I mean, everybody knew it. The Goyim in his time would come and ask him questions about astrology and astronomy when he was 15 years old. And yet this great mind, when he prayed, he would go into such ecstasy that he would fall on the floor and roll around in ecstasy. A person who's who's experiencing more than they can handle to the point that they had to pad his room with cushion walls and floors so he shouldn't get hurt. The Alta Rebbe. So, this, the, so what happened was that often when he would be in that trance, what happened different times during prayer, during mitzvahs, they would hear him saying in an undertone, incidentally, just parenthetically, the Alta Rebbe would say discourses of deep, profound chassidus, most of which, which is published today. How is it published? Because it was written down by scribes, people who heard it, often edited by the Alta Rebbe himself or the second Rebbe. We have many, many, many works of the Alta Rebbe. I don't know, 50 books of the Alta Rebbe, 40 books. But there's one book which is considered the most reliable because it's, co it's called Hanachas Rapinchas, the notes of Rapinchas. There were many scribes who would hear and they would have good memories and write it down, like in our generation, Rabbi Yoel Khan. But Rapinchas is something special because Rapinchas was able to roll on the floor with the Yalta Rebbe and he heard all of the deep, profound Torah thoughts that were said in the moments of ecstasy and he recorded it for posterity. And some of the deepest concepts of Hasidism that tell us about what God's real mystery is and his purpose and his desire are in Rapinchas' notes because he was down there. So coming back, close parenthesis, when the Alta Rebbe was in those moments of ecstasy, they would often hear, often hear him say, I don't know if, if you've heard this phrase before, but you should remember this phrase. This is like Chabad 101. The Alta Rebbe would say, Father in heaven, he would say, I don't want your paradise. I don't want your Ganeiden. I don't want your lower Ganeiden. I don't want your higher Ganeiden. I want just you. In Yiddish, Ich will nicht dein Ganeiden. Ich will nicht dein Almhaba. I want you alone. And what it really means is what the Sikh is saying. 
I want to be with Hashem. I don't want to get reward. I don't want to get points. I don't want to get a nice paradise. Am I stupid? I have a dad. Just give me my papa back. Like some stupid people who celebrate when, when a father passes away because now they got an inheritance. A smart kid would say, take back your inheritance. Give me back my papa. I don't want to make like the world to come is not going to be amazing. It's going to be beyond amazing. But it's going to be beyond amazing because of the real reason. When God's in the room, it's nice. It's a lot sweeter than any paradise that you could possibly have. Not a lot. Infinitely. Infinitely squared. Sweeter than any paradise. It's God. But the way to get there somehow is through the practical mitzvah, which it too has these two sides so simple and yet so deep. Not deep, essential, beyond deep. You just did it. What'd you do? You touch God. You did it without knowing the reasoning. You just black wrapping black straps on your arm. A lot of people have a big problem with that. Judaism is the people of the book. It's true. But what is the bottom line? What is the the final way you want to get the bottom line and sit on the couch with Hashem? Put on the black straps. Just do it. Really? It's so basic. But you're giving him a hug. A hug is basic. But don't get better than that. Out. Let's talk about the black straps. According to the Sikha, the is knot... This, is, this, is this, I'm sorry, is this like a Gishmaka thing? Is this Gishmaka? This is very good. Very good. I internalize it because it's... And as always, as always, it raises more questions than it answers. Wonderful. That's what it, but that's where we're headed. Um, let's talk about that knot in the bag. Okay, so according to the Sikha, that knot is sitting over the loose bone. So I have a, this, this uh, yes? issue. Yes. I didn't know that, doctor. Check the, check the Sikha. I, I was oh amazed. my god! I, I missed yes. that. Yes. Okay. So wonderful. I'm glad. I'm glad we're all participating together here. But uh, I've I've done anatomy. Um, Howard, Mark, you, you've done anatomy. I, I don't remember this loose bone. Uh, I assumed. I assumed until until I read this sicha that the loose bone was the temporal bone, which I am familiar with. Uh, however, the problem with the temporal bone is we've got two of them. And we're supposed to, the reconstitution is going to be from the loose bone, which is singular. Where do you see the sikha, the loose bone is with the two and not? Okay, so go near the end. It was seven pages. I'm going to guess it's on page six uh, around there. Check, check a footnote just in case. I didn't. I see loose is only mentioned once. I have it. Okay, go, go ahead through it. Um, it's on page six, and it's in footnote so, number right? 26. Thank you. I also saw that. And there's a link. If you click on it, on the, on the uh, reference, it brings up a page. Kambala. A, long, a long page, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> I read it, too. It was great. Actually, that was... <laughs> That was longer than the sicha. <laughs> Once you got into it, but I don't it, it see says, it. I don't see, see it in the original sicha, but I'm going to look in the English. Wait, did you go to page six? I don't have page six. I have the actual sicha. But let me take a look right now. Hang on. Hang on. At the bottom of page six, 
footnote 26 is a link. Oh, uh, but I think it was actually in the Sikha itself, Brian, that, that there was a reference beyond that. Beyond that, I don't remember. It could have been in that separate uh, okay. piece as well. But it, it, it was startling, actually, because for a bone that I never saw, it gives directions how to find it. <laughs> One second. Here it is, right? Okay, this is page verse. This is 26. According to the Arizal. Okay, I know it's not brought in the Sikha, by the way. The footnotes don't line up exactly. I don't think it's brought in the Sikha, which is fine. There's a lot of scholarship that's not in the Sikha. I'm looking at this. I don't see even a reference to the work. It, the it does. It says that the loose bone never decomposes. No, no, no. Right. I'm saying that six is not in the original. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not correct. I'm sure it is. I'm sure they checked it out and they and they wanted to make it interesting. Can you can you go into the Arizal? Sure. Just click where you are there. And just go up a little bit. Maybe it's there where I read it. From the teaching of Isaac Luria. Very interesting. Go ahead. Moshe, Yarnofsky, when Moshe Yaakov Wisniewski is known to be like an expert on the Luria Kabbalah. All right, so just uh, uh, bring it up a little bit. I never heard of this. I'm just telling you. This is fantastic, though. Here, yeah, you're right. It says it here. Here it is, the knot. The knot of fill-in from the time the person dies, right? Yeah. So what do you want me to comment on? I'm not an expert, not in the Kabbalah, no, no, not no. in the anatomy. No, what no, actually, <laughs> it's, well, the loose bone brings up a different issue for me, which is that the entire body will be reconstituted from the loose bone. I, I, I have to go back then to something which is what you'll say not allowed, but it happens. And that is Jews get cremated. If you're if a person is cremated, then I assume the loose bone goes with the rest, and it's gone. So are all Jews? Let's get back to our original premise then. Can I can I close the screen so I can see people? Yes, go go go. That all Jews are going to the world to have a share in the world to come. Then what happens to the Jew who has been cremated? Has he lost his share of the Jew, of the world to come? Is his soul and body going to be reconstituted? Is there a resurrection? What's going on here? Whose bone doesn't get doesn't burn up like the burning bush? It's still there with the ashes. That bone is intact. And there's an argument, Brian. You're such a believer. <laughs> there's an argument. <laughs> That even in the concentration camp crematoriums, there was something left. Thank God I wasn't there. Remember, when God's going to resurrect, He can find everybody. He doesn't have a problem. He's got enough ways to find everybody. Nissim Mengel, who's a Holocaust survivor, who's the by happens to be the translator of the Chabad book, the Siddur, and many other books, and he spoke here a few times. Some of you may have seen him. He's a fascinating man, and he he claimed that he or whatever people were able to see some remnant. I don't know when, then or now. But bottom line is you can't destroy it. If it's indestructible, it's indestructible. It doesn't make a difference how. 
Rabbi? Still doesn't mean that the cremation is not good. It's good, but not nothing to do with Olam above. Yeah. Rabbi, uh, much Great simpler. discussion, Arthur. And Alan, and thank <laughs> you for teaching me something fundamental. You know, Isaac Luria, by the way, I'm sorry, give me a second, Arthur. Isaac Luria has a license to say things off the charts because he's Isaac Luria. He does a lot of things that raise eyebrows, which we never knew before him. And um, it doesn't mean that there's only one truth, etc. But I never knew that. It's fascinating. I had an 11 o'clock. I want to just make sure he's not, he's not uh, running away. Robert? I'm wrapping up. You want to, I'm wrapping up. Go ahead. Sorry. What were you saying, okay. Arthur? Yeah, yeah. Rabbi, much, much simpler question. Uh, basically, the question focuses, focuses on the issue of a man in the Holocaust who approached a rabbi uh, with the following. He could save his son, but if he saves his son, the Nazis will identify the fact that there'll be a reduction in the number of children, and hence they will take someone else and kill that other person. Lady, in, equating Lady. With, the, with the son, who apparently uh, the man helped escape. So he has this dilemma, and I'd like to know your response to that kind of a situation. <laughs> I'm dealing with a lot of things way above my pay grade today. Well, do the do the best to earn the highest grade. So tell me again, what is the what is the basically? In other words, the the man has the opportunity to save his son. He has a way of doing that. The Nazis, if you take a child out of the line, they will know that his son has been taken out, has been protected. Now he has the choice of basically saving his son and thereby causing the death of another child. That's the essence. And in that circumstance, uh, what should he do? Right. I live in America. There's something called the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi. I mean, generally, you know, generally the, give us your pitch. best pitch, Rabbi, your best pitch. Why would I want to give a pitch of such a... a Arthur, there's, there's a, that's, very that's very similar to, I, I mean, I, 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 I think it's a, you know, one of those ethics questions. There's, there's a, a, several of them, that, you know, it's very similar to the classic one of, you know, you're standing on a, a near a train track and there's a lever and the train is, the, the train track splits and on one where the train is going and is headed are five workers or six workers and the train, they have, they can't hear them. They, they don't know the train is coming. And on the other track is one person and you're standing there. And do you pull the lever to veer the train off to protect five for 